Boraway Army and fellow music fans, I'm Kayla. And I'm Bethany, and we're the hosts of Standing BTS from the Consequence Podcast Network. We're a bi-weekly show that covers the impact and legacy of K-pop group BTS. We mix the perfect blend of research and fangirl as we take a deep dive into lyrics during album reviews, theorize over music videos, and keep up with their current events. No BTS topic is off limits. We welcome everyone into the conversation, whether you're a casual fan, committed ARMY, or someone who's just curious about one of the biggest music groups in the world. Come chat with us every other Thursday with a new episode wherever podcasts are found. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hello, my little friends. Welcome to the Spark Parade, a show where I talk to amazing people about the art and culture that's shaped their lives. I'm Adam Ons. Thank you very much for joining me this week. You are getting treated to my conversation with author Georgia Clark about her love for Australian musical comedy group Doug Anthony Allstars, silent film star Clara Bow, and the Buffy the Vampire Slayer TV show. But wait, you say, didn't somebody else talk about Buffy a while ago? Firstly, I'm thrilled that you've been listening closely enough to catch that. And secondly, yes, I had a chat about Buffy with Alexis Caught on episode 25. And you know what? It's all part of the plan to talk about it again with Georgia. This show is about talking to people about all different kinds of art. Everything that's influenced or affected or moved them throughout their lives. And I want to make sure that there's tons of variety in the topics discussed, but I also don't want to limit what my guests talk about. The art we discuss is important, but you know what is equally, if not more important? The guests' individual experience of that art. Two people can view the same piece of art in wildly different ways, or at least from very different perspectives, and I think that's the case here. The Spark Parade isn't just about art, it's about the way we experience it as individuals. And that experience is totally subjective. Every person has this giant list of the artworks and artists they've loved throughout their lives, and that list will intersect with other people's lists at certain points. But I'd imagine it's exceedingly rare, if not unheard of, to find two people with exactly the same list. So that list is like an artistic fingerprint. Anyone looking at it will get a sense of who you are. Maybe it reflects your politics or your sexuality or your race, but the specifics of how you relate to each item on that list, the stories behind them, the events in your life that are, for you, inextricably linked with the artworks and artists you love, that's your artistic DNA. To me, hearing those stories is one of the best ways to get to the heart of someone. Better than an interview, better than a biography, because our connection to the art we love is so personal, so emotional, and that's why I'm excited to hear stories about the same work of art from lots of different people. 
The differences in perspective can be subtle or extreme, but I see that artwork from a new perspective each time someone shares their specific connection to it. I don't want to constantly repeat the same topics because another big part of this show is discovering and discussing new works, but I also like the idea of occasionally comparing one guest's love of a subject with another's. So that's what we're going to do today. Doesn't that sound like a guaranteed good time? Well, nothing in life is guaranteed, but I think this is the closest you can get. So let's cut the bullshit and jump on over to the main event, eh? Here comes my chat with Georgia Clark about Dave Anthony All-Stars, Clara Bow, and Buffy the Vampire Slayer. So, why don't we start with Doug Anthony All-Stars? The Doug Anthony All-Stars. Definitely not going to be known outside of Australia, although they did find some fame in the UK before they were famous in Australia, actually. So let me take you back on a journey to the mid eighties in Australia, (laughs) which is when they formed and I was a wee tot. Yes. The Doug Anthony All Stars were a three piece musical comedy trio who had their roots in punk and sort of brutal, uh, confrontational style of humor. The three Australian guys, Paul McDermott, Tim Ferguson, and Richard Feidler, who met in Canberra at art school and started by busking, doing some busking, and then went on to find fame at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival and were a huge... I mean, I'm going to say they were huge stars in Australia. I'm not sure if everyone would agree with me, but they certainly had um, quite a reputation in the comedy scene. And I I discovered them when I was in high school. Hmm. And this is when you had Walkmans and CD players. This is definitely before the internet came to Australia. And they were my first obsession, I would say. Mm-hmm. Like my first real obsession. I was... 13, 14, just starting to carve out my own identity of what I liked and what I was into. And they were good looking guys. Like they were good looking. Tim was, Tim and Paul were both good looking. I had a massive crush on both of them. Uh, And their songs were really edgy and really funny. And their whole live show was, had a very uh, risque feel to it. Mm -hmm. So I single-handedly got half of my grade at Gosford High School obsessed with the Doug Anthony All-Stars because it was before the internet. So you really found out about things if they weren't mainstream things and in the popular consciousness through word of mouth and mixtapes and things like that. So I got everyone onto the Doug Anthony All-Stars and they had they a lot of their stuff was pretty risque like they had a song called i f dogs you can mm. fill that in i'm not sure if we're allowed to swear on this podcast mm-hmm. um, very very much so, so. <laughs> say, say what you like, yeah. <laughs> but they they were just so funny so kind of sexy dangerous mm. when i look back on it of course and as you look back on any of the interests that you had when you were younger some parts of it seemed kind of twee but at the time it was really it felt real really groundbreaking and mm-hmm. i was totally obsessed with them i did meet tim ferguson at a conference a screenwriting conference Mm. years later in my 20s where i was on the pitching circuit i was pitching film and television and i had won a couple of competitions and this was the semi-finals at this screenwriting convention that i'd been like flown to and and set up with 
And I met him because he was a speaker there and we got along really well. And then we had this like idyllic afternoon lying in, under a tree together talking about life. I felt like I was all of my teen, teenage fantasies were coming true at once. And we say friends. We're not really like friends now. I've been in New York for 10 years, mm. but it was a really wonderful kind of full circle moment of like meeting my hero yeah and meeting your hero and having it actually be a positive experience yeah Um, yeah yeah. uh, that's great um so just so i can get my head around like what they i I mean i know that they did like a tv show right they had live shows they had albums as well one studio album and like four live albums Mm. so they were they were essentially a live act Mm -hmm. and they were but straddling comedy and music they sang songs they wrote songs they were actually quite tuneful songs Mm. so i was just listening to some punk music the other night and i was like oh yeah punk was pretty terrible like it wasn't (laughs) so musical it was so much more of a performance Mm -hmm. and they were quite tuneful and musical um, but they and they sort of sang and danced and would get audience members to do things like cut their credit cards or hit each other. Like they were very audience interactive based. Mm-hmm. But they were a live show. They had a spot on a, a popular variety show called The Big Gig. And this is when Australia had five television channels, mm-hmm. count them five. And this is on one of them. And... They, uh, yeah, they're they're a live act, and I saw them live. I was just old enough to see them live when they were coming to the end of their reign, which was in the mid nineties. Mm. So they they sort of um, officially disbanded in nineteen ninety four. They went on to kind of come back together for like every now and again they would re release an album or a DVD mm. or something like that. But I think I saw them on their farewell tour. So I would have been 14 or 15, something like that. Yeah. Oh, my God. Um, So when you started listening to them or becoming aware of them, Mm -hmm. did adults approve of kids or teenagers listening to them? Because it was all kind of subversive and a lot of like naughty stuff, right? Yeah. Certainly, like it was progressive people, I think, were like, I'm sure my parents wouldn't have cared either way. My parents parents were very laissez-faire, but they were deliberately trying to get under the skin of more conservative audience members. Their name, the Doug Anthony All-Stars, is from a conservative politician, Doug Anthony, Hmm. who was a member of the country party. And I think he was the deputy prime minister of Australia for a hot second, but it was, and that's kind of all you need to know about, like (laughs) where the name and where they... It came from so but they were suddenly popular like they had mainstream popularity in australia i think as well australia's sense of humor was developing and changing in from the 80s 80s to the 90s into something that was edgier and dark. it always has been darker it's one of the things i notice a lot about living in america is that my sense of humor is a lot darker than my wife's sense of humor she's american <laughs> and every now and again i'll come out with something she's like oh you can't say that or like why would you say that and i'm like i'm just kidding babe like i mean i don't really this is a joke and mm. whereas if i make those jokes in australia everyone will just pick it up and run with it like not just my friends like the barista the bus driver yeah so the sense of humor i think is a little we don't have as much of that American earnestness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that might explain why they had success in Britain as well, because yeah. I think the same kind of humor That's is right. appreciated. Yeah. Um, and definitely, have you ever been to the Edinburgh Festival? 
I haven't been to the Edinburgh Festival, no. It, it feels like stuff that would really fit in there. Yeah. Um, and the kind of comedy and performance and the fact that it like combines comedy and music and yeah. all of that stuff um, really, yeah, makes sense. Did you say you were like the one who introduced your friends to Yeah, I had, so I had a cassette with their album on it and I bought that to school and it was kind of passed around. And it definitely was something that was sort of illicit and exciting because they swore and they referenced drugs and they referenced like communism and things that seemed sexy and cool to a bunch of, you know, 13, 14 year olds. (laughs) And I had I dragged two of my guy friends to go and see them play in Sydney, which was I went to high school about a, two hours north of Sydney, mm. and um, moved closer when I was in Year Ten. But for them, that was like a two-hour trip into the city, <laughs> so it was still an extremely exciting moment, and to see them to see them perform live. Yeah, yeah, it's I think even if it's not something that you're being told that you can't do, that Mm -hmm. kind of moment of being an adolescent and starting to experience things that are adult and like developing your own taste, but also getting to like see comedy or your music or something that feels like it's more for grownups, but it's something that you can appreciate is this big. It's so thrilling when you're younger to start to figure out what your taste is Mm -hmm. and what you like and, I think at that stage, I was very open in high school to a lot of different... I was very interested in like alternative culture and weird art house films and would go and see any... I was a member at a, um, the Belvoir Street Theatre, which was uh, still a theatre company today, and would see all of their plays. And I was just hungry for culture. And it's interesting because now I think my tastes are... A little more. I know what I like. I don't want to sit through a weird art house film where mm-hmm. nothing happens for three hours. But back then, I was really open to those experiences, and mm-hmm. they. I think the Dugget the Neo Stars straddled a. They offered something that was fun and funny, which I still really like, and edgy and kind of cool, which I still also really like. Mm-hmm. Topical, and they were. They were cute yeah and they were yeah. these three cute guys so yeah. there was a lot going for them and for, yeah. for me yeah yeah um I, I i think because of the nature of this podcast you know talking to people about things that have influenced them or like mm-hmm. cultural touchstones i end up talking to people quite a bit about adolescent yes. stuff yeah. um and it is this time where like you said you know it's you're a sponge like soaking up what the world has to offer and yeah. eventually you distill that into like it solidifies into what your taste becomes but i think that's a time when it's like all this stuff and i can you know experience everything the world has to offer yeah and also like raging hormones and so you see attractive people and it's like oh hmm, yeah Yeah, i'm I'm figuring it out and you have the time for fandom Hmm. the time and the interest to be a fan i was a huge fan of them and other things we're going to talk about and that fandom is different now when I I'm in my late 30s now and so I still think of myself as a fan but I'm not gonna like write fan fiction about something Mm -hmm. or spend hours and hours and hours a day listening to one album over and over and over again which Mm -hmm. is definitely what I was doing back then just the, the 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 passion that you have for something when you're younger I think it does 
change and for better or for worse. You know, I think sometimes maybe it would be nice to really tap back into that intense fandom. And I still do feel fandom for certain things now, mostly like TV shows that I'm watching because you can really connect to the characters and go on a real journey with them and you're sort of connected to them in a way. But not it's different it's just different from when you're a kid yeah like you probably wouldn't watch the same episode of a tv show over and over again or something you know it's like yeah um yeah it's a different experience of uh, fandom exactly um in the interest of time uh we should probably Mm -hmm. scoot along to topic two um clara bow clara bow yeah so i picked clara as someone who i'll tell you about Clara, and then kind of why I did such a deep dive into a little-known film star. So this would have been a few years ago, my 30s. So Clara Bow was the first sex symbol in American cinema, arguably, but there's a strong argument for that. She was born in 1905 and then was rose to prominence in the 1920s in the silent film era. Talkies came into sort of the mainstream popular film in like the late 20s, 29. And she was at the height of her fame, probably 27, 28. The film It Girl, which she was a star of, which was a huge success, gave um, us the phrase It Girl. So she was the first It Girl. In that time, sex symbols or sexy sort of movie stars were creations of the studio. They were often foreigners, given foreign names. They were like, they were characters Hmm. they weren't real people and women like successful women like mary pickford who was sort of the reigning queen of hollywood at the time were squeaky clean and she often played little girls even as she was a very powerful and very rich producer married to another movie star douglas fairbanks she played well into her you know well after she was a little girl a little girl character Mm -hmm. clara was the first popular movie star who was sexy and she just was sexy in and of herself like unlike marilyn monroe which is like a performance of sexy Mm -hmm. um she had a palatable knowledge of sex and it showed she was small elfin she had like curly dark hair like in a pixie cut huge eyes and she's a massive flirt and she was just herself and that's what audiences liked she Mm -hmm. had a very natural fun presence in the films that she was cast in i i wrote a book about clara i wrote a after the regulars came out i'm a novelist and after my first fiction book came out i wrote two young adult novels and then i wrote an adult fiction novel called the regulars i wrote a novel that was inspired by the life of clara bow set Mm -hmm. in the 1920s And I had a character that was sort of modeled off Clara and like a best friend character. And it took them through the 20s of the Clara character, whose name was Pepper in the book, Pepper's Rise to Fame, and dealt with a lot of the issues that happened with Clara as well, Mm. where she had a massive fall from grace. She was ill-treated by the studios. She was married. She was engaged five times in five years. She was someone who presents a really interesting question of whether she was a hero or a victim Mm -hmm. because in so many ways clara was a hero she made her name off her name which was really uncommon in those days like women would marry and take their husband's name and they were so tied to a man because you know you couldn't own property and all this sort of stuff and um but she um she owned her own house she never kind of compromised her sexuality but she was also 
taken advantage of by the studios. She was under radically underpaid for mm-hmm. the money that she was making. She was very ill-treated. She was treated as like a worker, not in a good way. In a, They didn't waste good scripts on her because mm-hmm. she audiences would come to see whatever she was in. So they would put her in all of these bad kind of like movies that weren't very good. And she wasn't really able to advocate for herself. She was protected by no one. Like everyone took advantage of her. Even her like best friend was stealing from her for years mm-hmm. and ended up in this court battle. And she was a very extremely vulnerable young woman. And she really was a young woman. She was like, in, when she was, she was at one stage, like the biggest movie star in the world compared to how, like how many fan letters she got. And she was just, so she was like the Jennifer Lawrence of her day mm-hmm. making in today's money, like $10,000 a week, which is just nothing. Yeah. Can you imagine how much money Jennifer Lawrence is making in a week? Right. So I was so, I did a real deep dive into Clara. I went and saw all of her films and I read um, her biography, which is really great. She hasn't sort of sustained a place in popular culture in the way that other actors like Greta Garbo have. Greta was someone who, when the transition was being made from silence films to talkies, she was given two years and a lot of training by Paramount to make the transition in and it was a very carefully prepared transition and Clara was given two weeks to learn a script and like star in a film in a completely new medium and it really was a new medium it wasn't just that there was sound they had to shoot pictures differently all of the technical process was different in silent films the actors would just say anything when they were they didn't say their lines they just talked about their weekends to each other which is why you can always see them like chattering away and then a few lines of dialogue come up and so they had to actually learn scripts and say them you know to you know you know kind of like timed wave with the microphone which was extremely sensitive and so she didn't really make the transition into talkies and then she um, was one of the first victims, I guess, of what you would call like an, an attack style journalism. The Coast Reporter, which was like a lurid, like one of those, what are those kind of like, I married an alien style. Yeah, like tabloids. Like tabloids. Yeah. Published this like hyped up series of attacks on her, claiming that she had sex with everyone from like her maids to croupiers to everyone. And saying things like, you may as well just kill yourself, which was like the first time that kind of had happened. Hmm. and um, she ended up in this huge court battle with them and never really kind of made it back into the spotlight, which she didn't really want to be in by that stage anyway because she was completely burnt out. So I really, I just found her so fascinating Mm. (laughs) and really was so interested in her. I think it's interesting when you, when there's a performer or an artist or anyone in the public eye who isn't really in complete control of themselves or is you can just see the vulnerability in what they're doing rather than a very polished performer who there's something just sort of so exciting and terrifying at the same time about that I think she would have been someone that this was also like the rise of fan magazines the rise of fandom the like the first invention of fandom through fan magazines which is how then americans were sort of realizing the pleasure of the cinema and everyone went to the cinema all the time it was so cheap you'd go like twice a week it was and it was such a novelty to come and see like a a a silent film Mm -hmm. so the most time that any americans like you know have ever gone to see the seen films was in like the late 20s that was Mm -hmm. like the most popular time of the invention of it and so everyone knew clara and 
and I'm just really fascinated by her. Yeah. I wrote a whole book about her, and then it was never published. I didn't sell it. Oh. Yeah. My publisher didn't like it, and I had to pitch another book, and so that's then I wrote The Bucket List, which was the book that came out after that. That's a shame. That's <laughs> uh, oh, a really good book. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe one day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, I, I, I find her really fascinating, too, and it feels like all of these elements beyond her control mm. working against her the studio system in and of itself, you know, actors being contracted for periods of time in those days instead of specific films, mm-hmm. which gave the studios so much more control over what you were doing and having somebody who brought in a lot of money, but who they had no respect for. Mm-hmm. There were like issues of classism and yeah. sexism and all of this other shit that she was having to put up with. And she'd grown up in a tenement in Brooklyn mm-hmm. and her mother was mentally ill. Yeah. She had a really hard time growing up. And the fact that she was able to attain this level of success was absolutely incredible. And it's a testament to like how how amazing she was. And it makes me angry. It's, you know, all, all of these things that were working against her feel so unfair. And also, you know, people like Mary Pick- Pickford and mm-hmm. Douglas Fairbanks, who presented this public image that mm. was like squeaky clean and... Presenting a public face, this is what, you know, the uh, personal life has to match the um, characters that we're portraying on the screen. And all of those people had, you know, were having sex. All of those people had scandals. All those people had other things in their personal life that they probably wouldn't want people to know about. But they were creating characters for their off-screen life as well as their on-screen life. And... Clarabeau wasn't willing to do that and and just like you know she was living an authentic life and being herself and in some ways that feels really modern that feels like I know that people have media training now and stuff but there is authenticity has much greater currency um, now and people want to feel like they're really seeing you know when they they hear interviews with a star they want to feel like they're getting the real person instead of some like cultivated image which is always you know it's it's a balance it's always going to happen there's a a, an element of pretend there um when it's somebody addressing their public rather than you know people they know um but it felt like a very extreme version of that where everyone was really dismissive of her Mm -hmm. and you know didn't appreciate the talent that she had and I just can't imagine treating someone like that when they're making that much money for you yeah. and you're, you're like having to give so little in return. Yeah, yeah, no, there's so many things about her that were fascinating. She was always really honest about her hard scrabble background. And that, like you said, that wasn't accepted at the time. That even if you were from, if you were a movie star and you were from like a poor background, that you, you would present and basically pretend to be middle, upper class. That was what was the norm and Clara just never did that and she didn't really care about that she never felt the need or the desire or I don't think she even had the knowledge of how she would present otherwise she -hmm. was a very young woman making an unprecedented amount of money for her which wasn't comparatively a lot of money but just the the attention as well and the rising excitement about her sexiness because mm-hmm. this is the 20s and women are discovering all of these newfound freedoms and the like the invention of the car is giving people this new freedom to move and like have, have sex in cars which is what teenagers just did all the time mm. and clara was a like just a lightning rod for 
all of these new desires that mm-hmm. were bubbling up to the like the collective consciousness. Yeah. But she was so unprepared to just to do that. And there was no career direction for her or plan made for her because it was all new. You know, mm-hmm. you weren't even thinking about what a career in the movies looked like because no one really I mean there of course we have like stars that were popular in the 10s into the 20s but not really. I mean, mm. you know, there, there was the invention of the talkies just changed everything. And so she would have been so ill-equipped to be able to make that transition anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it sounds like, from what I've read, that the few talkies that she made were actually quite successful. And it wasn't about the historical idea that I'd heard before. It was, it was like, oh, the Brooklyn accent ruined everything. Once people heard her speak, yeah, it was like... Bad. But... It sounds more to me like she just wasn't into it as well as all of this other stuff that was going on. When she started making talkies, she felt like silent film was much more expressive and she was much more free. And there was so much more technical bullshit coming in. And, you know, like having the mic in front of her was really distracting. And all of that kind of stuff that she just didn't like acting as much as she had when she didn't have to worry about talking. And, yeah, I, I think even though there were all of these other external factors that were obviously a huge part of her decision to stop doing it, the fact that she kind of left of her own accord. And I mean, it's, I guess that's not necessarily true. She had all of these external pressures that were part of the reason why she left, but just retiring at whatever, 27 and just saying, nope, I I don't want to do this anymore. And imagining a huge star like Jennifer Lawrence doing that today, it would be astonishing. Yeah. And because of it all kind of coming to a bit of a crushing end, she didn't have a very happy later in life. She had two sons. She attempted suicide when they were young. Then her partner, Rex Bell, who was an actor, became a conservative, like a Republican politician. And they divorced. And she died when she was 60 alone. You know, the story of so many great performers, actors, artists, thinkers to die alone or to die in a way where they're not being celebrated and surrounded by, you know, fat grandchildren or whatever. It's really, it's really sad. But I, I would encourage anyone listening to just like look up a couple of her clips and stuff, uh, which are readily available on YouTube, just to sort of see, just to, she's so gorgeous and she's so fun and funny and appealing and to imagine just to kind of get a taste of what it would have been like to have her as the biggest movie star in the world in the late 20s. It's really, it's it's fun to think about. Hmm. And I think you get a really good flavor of her personality, even from still photographs. Mm-hmm. And it's just like this real magnetism. She, yeah. she really lit up the screen and even just like snapshots that I've seen, like there was a picture of her with her dad that everything about her just shines. Yeah. Um, She's an it girl. She was the first it girl. Yeah. It's uh, quite an incredible legacy, even though there's all of this tragic, horrible Mm -hmm. stuff and she had a lot of terrible things happening to her. It's uh, yeah. It's good to have people like yourself who are remembering (laughs) her and, uh, you know, bringing her back into the public consciousness. And on that note, why don't we talk about <laughs> Buffy? Buffy, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, my mm. 
Probably my greatest um, pop culture obsession mm-hmm. would be Buffy. And I know I'm not alone there. I was just listening to an interview with Emily Nussbaum, the te- television critic for The New Yorker, and she said that her first, the show that got her obsessed with television was Buffy. And there are many of us out there, many of us <laughs> out there. So Buffy, as I'm sure we all know, was a, a television show on the WB network from 2000, uh, 1997 to 2003. And I was watching it in first year university mm-hmm. uh, and my first sort of share houses. It was when we still had landlines. We still had free to wear television you could tape TV onto VHS cassettes, mm-hmm. but there was, um, and then later I kind of got all the shows on DVD, but we were watching it when it was on air. And I think we only got it, I think we got it relatively close to when it was on air in America. It was a big popular television show in Australia, just mm-hmm. like in America. And the show, like Buffy is like basically the same age as me. So like there was a lot of, it was like a great time to watch a television show like that because it definitely felt like, oh, this is for me. Mm -hmm. This is for me and my friends. And that's a really thrilling thing to experience as well, to be participating in some part of popular culture and to know it's made just for you or to Mm -hmm. have that feeling (laughs) is very special. So I think the things that I loved about Buffy, beyond it being a fun television show, Monster of the Week starting off, you know, a mix of comedy and action and uh, drama and sort of sci-fi elements. I think what made the show so special was the characters, obviously, the premise, Buffy being an uh, unwilling superhero, a a young woman with incredible powers. I think that never really got old. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like Mm. there's like that, that premise is such a strong idea because especially for the time some of those ideas might seem kind of twee now but we really hadn't seen like a kick-ass superhero who was of course she was young and blonde and small and attractive but because you got to spend so much time with Buffy seven seasons of time you there's a lot you can do such a deep dive into someone's personality so she's so much more than just the cute blonde the show was really funny it felt funny in a way that wasn't like lame funny it was actually really funny and clever of course i have to mention willow and tara's relationship which was Mm -hmm. one of the first meaningful young femme relationships on television definitely was like a moment of like oh if they can do it i can do it Mm. kind of playing in there for me Mm -hmm. i uh i also really got into buffy fan fiction Mm. i I did try to write it. Um, It's not really my calling, but I gave it a go. But I would just, in my first job, I remember sitting online, like on the internet, the brand new internet, and just finding it so hard to get any work done because all I wanted to do was read Buffy fan fiction. Buffy Mm. fan fiction was sexy AF. (laughs) um, And basically paired all the characters like if you wanted to see any of the characters having sex and there was fan fiction for you and it was so well written it really felt like you were watching an episode of the show Mm. it was such a great extension of the show and it was really embraced by the creators as well like even the plot line where Buffy vampire slayer ends up having a romantic relationship with Spike who's a vampire and her arch nemesis that was all preceded in fan fiction and in so many ways was like the show the show's creator Joss Whedon and Marty Knox and all the other people who created the show 
participating with the fan culture and like reflecting it back to itself, which felt really thrilling and unusual. I think these days that's slightly more common because there is more, more fan creator interaction because of the internet, like the communication is sped up so much, Mm -hmm. but back then it felt really exciting and it was just a really great television show. (laughs) Yeah. I, I guess the fan fiction stuff is like, it was basically not the, at the dawning of the internet, but when the internet was really starting to cook mm-hmm. um, and people were the, the concept of fan fiction and people like writing things and sharing them online was, if not just starting, it was a relatively new thing. And having something like this, where it's like this really huge, expansive universe with mm-hmm. so many characters and so much rich material to work with in the first place that it's a, a pretty good jumping off yeah. point for, you know, um, sparking people's imagination in that way. Yeah, the universe part of it was such a huge appeal. In shows that are set in the here and now, you can only create you know, humans, basically, mm. like a group of friends or a family. But within Buffy, because of the premise of the story, which allowed for alternative universes and ghosts and ghouls and demons and shapeshifters and all these kinds of things. The world was so rich and a lot of those characters kept would be called back. Um, and so the pleasure of, of that was so great. The show was also, it had such a wicked sense of humor. I think some of my favorite episodes are some of the standalones where there's just like a tweak to the universe. There's mm. an episode where Cordelia, the classic rich bad bitch wishes that Buffy Summers had never been born and there's a whole episode like well what if Buffy Summers had never been born and never came to Sunnydale then then they sort of play out that idea and it's it felt just so rewarding as a fan to be in that in that world in that in that sort of slightly more perfect world mm. and it's funny when I I watched so many American shows and television movies and TV growing up and I never once thought that I would move to America. That was not my plan. And I didn't even visit America till I was in my late 20s and had lived in Sydney for, you know, 10 years or whatever. And it just seemed off limits to me, the idea of coming to America. It was like coming to the moon. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, yeah, that would be a nice idea, but I'm never going to actually do that. Right. And as soon as I got to New York, it was like, oh, oh, I could live here. This is just a place. Like, it's very far away from Australia. But... It's, I could live here. It was, it was such a, a place of like dreams and magic in my mind mm-hmm. growing up. And it's especially fun to kind of rewatch a lot of films and TV having lived in New York because it's, I'm, my wife has never seen The Sopranos and so we're doing The Sopranos <laughs> right now. And it's really interesting to watch it having more context about where New Jersey is. Like mm. when I was watching The Sopranos in Australia, I, vaguely knew where New Jersey was, but I had no context for what that meant. Mm-hmm. And so it's fun to sort of see it having lived here now and understanding so much more about what it means to be American in America, mm. living in America. Yeah. And it's so, Buffy is so rich with like pop culture mm-hmm. references and, yes. and stuff. So it's very well versed in, you know, the american experience of that time so yeah i think it is this mm, a a stew of you know amazing (laughs) things where it's like all of this fantasy stuff that 
by its nature that you know if it had been limited to just vampires i think that would be not necessarily a mistake but a very different experience but it was all different kinds of mythical magical stuff right plus having this grounding in real world issues and characters that felt real and were really well developed and just like having gay relationships having um talking about things that were not magical, not anything to do with the supernatural in addition to having the supernatural. And then all of the pop culture stuff and the humor, which was like so sharp and witty mm-hmm. um, and felt like something, at least to me, that wasn't really around, um, mm-hmm. especially whatever the, I'm thinking in like British terms, terrestrial TV like the you know five five public channels like in Australia where right. you know in this country um, there's always you know for as long as I've been alive there's been cable there's been pay TV but yeah. it was always like ABC NBC CBS were the big free channels that everybody had access to and then the WB kind of came along and when Buffy started it mm-hmm. was like kind of a nothing network and didn't really have hadn't had a hit and. Yeah, having this show be on this kind of weird unknown network, but also pushing the mm. humor in a, a different direction for what was happening on that TV that was available to everyone. Because in this country, like, you know, there's no swearing on network TV. There's no network TV. That's the, yeah. that's the phrase I'm looking yeah. for. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it felt like, I don't know if subversive is the right word for the humor, but um a bit more knowing and had that feeling of like maybe veering in the direction of, you know, Australian British humor. That's like a little bit more sophisticated Mm. and assumes that audience audiences have some, you know, it doesn't patronize the audience. Yeah. Yeah. It was a great mix of something that was playful and like shiny and fun as well as being, it felt smart. And it mm-hmm. felt clever. I think it's hard to straddle those two feelings in a show. Like often we can have a show that feels, that is that kind of escapism mm-hmm. and it feels fun and light to watch it, but it doesn't really have a lot of depth or real humor. The humor might kind of come across as a little lame, but I think Buffy, they had their finger on the pulse as far as making it feel emotional and feel connected to the characters you cared about their journeys hmm. and having just enough kind of scares and action for it to feel thrilling and racy. And to, then also because of the premise, because Buffy was a teenage girl with superpowers, it was able to talk about feminism hmm. and talk about empowering women and was able to talk about gender. Sort of it really preceded a lot of the conversations that we're having now, you mm-hmm. know, and so it was it did feel really of the times it makes me the show that i think about that was the big show after that show the oc the big teen show after that show the Mm -hmm. oc which i think in so many ways like played off the success of buffy was similar in terms of being able to get that mix right of emotional shiny um kind of cute light show and something that felt smart and sophisticated Mm-hmm. and kind of sexy uh being able to do both those things at the same time yeah and you can see this very logical linear progression i'm just thinking of shows like beverly hills 90210 mm-hmm. which is like the 
earlier version of the OC, but without any of that sophistication. Without any humor Mm -hmm. or a sense of any kind of self-reflectiveness or sarcasm. It was, I write television pilots and work a little bit in TV. So I was watch, I watched the pilot for Beverly Hills the other day and it really doesn't stand up. I mean, you can watch it (laughs) as a piece of history, but there's nothing about it that feels it was it was exciting for the time, but it doesn't really stand up. But I feel like the OC does. You mm-hmm. can watch it again and the characters are charming and the storytelling is good and it it's dated because it's all all shows that make an effort to be contemporary date themselves. It's mm-hmm. you know, you have to just kind of accept that's gonna happen. But it does it's still it's still a fun show. Yeah. And I think Buffy really holds up. Oh, totally. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, agreed. I think that is a comprehensive overview of some <laughs> little very insight good into some topics. of my interests and obsessions. Yeah. Um, so, if people listening to this want to find out more about you, mm-hmm. how would they do that? So, I'm a writer. I write novels, and I also host a storytelling night. You can find me and my books online at georgiaclark.com, and I host a storytelling night in New York City called Generation Women, which invites a woman in her 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s to tell an original story on a theme, and we have a monthly show at Caviar on the Lower East Side, and you can buy tickets at generationwomen.us. Perfect. Great. Thank you so much. Thanks, this has Adam. been really fun. Bye. See, what did I tell you? That was a metric ton of fun. Thanks again to Georgia. Check out her books. Her novel, The Bucket List, is out now in paperback. And also make an effort to check out Generation Women if you're in New York. I've been a few times and it is so wonderful. Always tons of great stories told by women from all walks of life. And while I'm recommending things to you, let's talk about the art I've absorbed this week. First of all, I finally saw Hustlers. It's great. JLo is great in it. So is Constance Wu. The tone, however, is totally different to the trailer. The trailer makes it seem like a movie you should watch at a hen night slash bachelorette party, but it's a fucking serious movie, okay? It makes me crazy that movies by and about women are marketed in such ludicrous ways. Like, people won't see a J-Lo movie unless the trailer has the tone of a body swap comedy. Take women seriously, you fucking dickhead studio executives. Sorry. End of rant. Go see Hustlers if you haven't yet. Also, I saw The Sound Inside on Broadway. It's Adam Rapp's new play, and it's a two-hander starring Mary Louise Parker and Adam Hockman. But this is really MLP's play. Yes, it's fine for me to call her MLP. We're very close. She's fine with it. Anyway, the play is just astonishing. It's basically a 90-minute monologue with occasional breaks for short scenes. Adam Rapp's writing is phenomenal, but it's also really dense and really literary with good reason. And MLP handles it like it is nothing. She is so fucking good. And I'm purposely not telling you anything about the plot because I went into it completely blind, and I think that's what you should do too. See it immediately. Seriously, it's so, so fucking good. Okay, I think you've probably had your fill, so let's call it quits for this week. As always, please, for the love of all that's right and good, follow me on social media at Spark Parade and rate and review the show wherever you download or stream it. I know it's annoying and you don't want to do it, but it'll be a huge help to the show and I'll love you forever. Seems worth it, right? Okay, that's it. Best wishes to you and your loved ones. Have a great week. 
Until next time, bye! When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.